0: To a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne on tonight's podcast. Meta's new Twitter rival called Threads is an instant success, or an Instagram fueled success, better yet. It saw an explosion of new users, unmatched by almost any app in the past decade. By Friday morning, signups had surpassed 70 million users. And Twitter owner Elon Musk is none too pleased, already threatening legal action. So why is Mark Zuckerberg moving into that space? Will it succeed? Will it indeed be the Twitter killer that some are predicting? Why do we get allergies? Why do some of us suffer a childhood and see them disappear, while others can develop them later in life? We don't know as much as you might think about them, given how many Canadians suffer from either seasonal or food allergies or both, but we'll try to get some answers. As the war in Ukraine reaches 500 days, imagine 500 days, NATO leaders, including Prime Minister Trudeau, will be in Lithuania for a two-day summit next week. We look into divisions over how to deal with Ukraine's request for membership and why Canada may be under pressure to up defence spending once again, or at least present a plan to other allies to show that we're serious about it. But first, in a Canadian first, a 26-year-old Ottawa man stands charged with terrorism and hate propaganda offenses for advocating a violent far-right ideology. Who is he? What is he accused of doing? And what does it say about how seriously law enforcement now regards the threat of far-right extremism in this country? Well, 18 years ago today, I was heading to London. I had been in Scotland at a G8 along with uh, the rest of the Canadian press corps following the Prime Minister, Paul Martin at the time, and there was a terrorist attack. uh, The 7-7 bombings, as they became known, uh, that targeted both the tube, the subway and a city bus or city buses. And it killed 52 people. It was a horrific event. More than 700 people were injured. I remember arriving in that part of London today, right around King's Cross and uh, St. Pancras stations, the train stations, and just being floored by how quiet it was, how much police presence there was. And there were people sort of there, two families of people who had been hurt looking for them in hospitals. It was a really awful day and a, and a terrible story to cover as well. And, you know, it marked at the time, it was Al Qaeda. I mean, these were sort of a lone wolf, small group of guys uh, who were eventually charged. But this was, you know, The evolution of terrorism, or charge, some of them were killed, obviously. Uh, It was the evolution of terrorism that always really interested me, how ideologies spread uh, from far-left groups of the 70s and the 80s to Al-Qaeda to ISIS, uh, you know, 10 years ago, and now a new crop of far-right groups. There are obvious differences, but also a lot of similarities between how they operate, some of what they talk about, you know, sometimes... You know, the ideologies change, but a lot of it is quite similar. So this story out of Ottawa this week, as I was thinking about the anniversary, the 18th anniversary of covering the 7-7 bombings, this story out of Ottawa this week really caught my eye. An Ottawa man is the first ever in this country to be charged with terrorism and hate propaganda offenses for advocating a violent far-right ideology. 26-year-old Patrick McDonald made his second appearance in an Ottawa courtroom this morning to answer for offenses he's accused of committing between 2018 and 2019. The Mounties said earlier this week they arrested McDonald and charged him with three terrorism related offenses under the criminal code. The RCMP says it's the first time in this country someone advocating a, fi- a violent far-right ideology has been charged with both terrorism and hate propaganda. He's accused of creating propaganda for a neo-Nazi group called Waffen Division, which the federal government listed as a terrorist entity back in 2021. So I was curious to find out more about the group, what this person's accused of having done, and just how difficult a case this will be to put forth, as well as the precedent that it's that's, and to help us do that is Peter Smith. He's an investigative reporter with the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, and he joins me now. Peter, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me a bit about the significance of this arrest and the charges, specifically, obviously, the terrorism charge, because I gather this is a first for Canada. Well, that
1: that's particularly what is significant about it um, is that charges of these kind haven't been, been brought before, certainly not um, for participation in the Adam Atomwaffen division, which is the the listed entity that Mr. McDonald is accused of, uh, of being a part of. Um, what's also interesting about it is that they stem from incidents that happened in 2019 and 2020, a couple of years before Adam Atomwaffen was added to the designated terrorist list, um, which isn't a requirement for these type of charges. Um, but, the, the length of the investigation as well um, is is quite interesting, as well as there's a, a second individual who was arrested that we have very little information about um, at this point.
0: Right. And no charges in that for that second individual just yet. Not obviously. at this time, no. Tell me a bit about Patrick McDonald, because uh, for listeners who don't know who he is, I mean, he's the one who faces these charges. He was in court again today. What is it that he's accused of having done?
1: Um. So... Patrick McDonald, um, or dark foreigner, as, as he's much better known as, um, was an individual who joined kind of online um, fascist spaces around 2017, um, and became incredibly prolific, uh, incredibly quickly for his propaganda production, um, the kind of images and uh, aesthetic that he, he developed, um, you know, very kind of... Uh, harsh edges like using particularly white black and red colors um, around figures like Hitler like Timothy McVeigh um, even Osama bin Laden um, developed in a a, like the look and the feel of very extreme types of neo-Nazism types of modern fascism um, that have kind of lasted longer than than he did within the movement as dark foreigner Um, what we know about uh, Patrick himself is fairly limited. Um, and mostly <clears throat> mostly comes down to a, a Vice investigation that the Canadian Anti-Hate Network participated in. Um, so he's he's an Ottawa man, uh around 26 years old. He was about he was in his twenties when he started to become active online in this space. Um, he served as the adamoffen Division's kind of graphic designer.
0: Yeah, he's a graphic uh, designer by training, right? I mean, I gather that's what he does.
1: Yeah, he ran a he ran a company called Helios Design Studios in Ottawa for a time that had a a couple of clients. A lot of the artwork that was on the website which I believe has been has been taken down um was mainly like kind of proof of concept things that that were for companies that mostly we find haven't existed or we certainly can't find any online footprint for them.
0: Right. Uh, What exactly in in this case, then, um, according to the authorities, what what has he done? What what is he accused of having done in terms of uh, is it simply in relation to the to the kind of because there's a there's a hate speech uh, charge as well in there? Is it just in terms of the sort of stuff that he was producing for this organization, for their propaganda?
1: Uh, It certainly seems like that based on the charges. Um, He's facing participating, participating in the activity of a terrorist group, facilitating terrorist activity and the commission of an offense for the terrorist group with the willful promotion of hatred. Um, The RCMP in their press release cited, um, I think it was three separate uh, propaganda videos by the Adam Woffin division. Um, And then I believe it was last year, there was a a few properties um, kind of raided and searched by the RCMP in Quebec um, that we've established one of the videos was, or at least one of them, uh, was shot there in Canada.
0: A bit about the group that, I mean, what is it that they espouse for people who they've obviously, the Adam Woffen, uh was listed as a terrorist organization by the government of Canada in February of 2021. Uh, I think there's been a lot of, of awareness of the threat of far right extremism in this country. What is it that this particular group espouses and how did uh, Patrick McDonald allegedly fit into that?
1: Yeah. So Adam Waffen was founded in 2015 on the web forum Iron March, which at the time was kind of a a meeting ground um, for internet fascists um, and kind of has led to several of these uh, real life groups um, being formed. Adam often kind of started almost, you could describe as a book club. It was very esoteric, like long discussions about uh, the nature of fascism and the philosophy. They, they kind of broke up into cells at the height of their Um, power, I guess, or the height of their infamy. They, they had about, I think it was around 80 members.
0: Right. Mostly Um, in the U S right. I mean, I gather mostly in the States.
1: Yes. Predominantly in the States, I think it was Florida, Texas um, were kind of significant organizing spaces for them. Uh, There was a Washington cell as well. One of their members kind of famously was detained at the Canadian border for 42 days after going to BC to visit his girlfriend. Um. They have, I believe it is five murders directly linked to the group. um, Two of which were, were members who were killed by a former member. Another um, stabbed a a gay college student multiple times. Um, The other one, I believe shot the parents of his girlfriend when they uh, tried to get him to break or try to get her to break up with him for being part of this organization. Um, But they're, they're kind of, their I guess the cause that they espoused the most was this militant type of accelerationism, this idea that there's a, a universal order uh, like a, a hierarchy that exists throughout um kind of the cosmos, and that applies to everything in nature, including the races um, and they believed that by playing on the um, already existing tensions in society and exacerbating them through things like terrorist action um that you could Uh, You could accelerate the kind of inevitable coming collapse in that way.
0: Peter Smith is with us. He's an investigative reporter at the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. We're talking about a court appearance today, a second court appearance. It's the arrest. Uh, he was arrested earlier this week. Patrick McDonald is a 26-year-old graphic designer from Ottawa. He's the first uh, person in Canada to uh, face terrorism and hate propaganda charges in connection with violent far-right ideology. Accused of being a member of a group called the Adam Atomwaffen, uh, designing a lot of their propaganda and so on. Uh, Peter, when you look at what this means in the grand scheme of things, we've heard a lot about, we've heard a lot from, from from the intelligence side of things and from policing talking about the threat of far right extremism and here we have this first case what does it represent in the grand scheme of things in terms of who this is who the group is and where they sit in the larger in the larger um, landscape of these groups
1: i definitely think it points to kind of a a larger willingness by law enforcement to um engage these individuals you know in in the criminal process like um whatever you think of the charges um, being brought against him, you know, it's, it's like you said, it's a significant first for these type. It is the second individual that we've seen charged in relation to the Adam Waffen division. There was a man, I believe from Hamilton or, or Windsor last year um, who was facing charges for trying to join kind of what is considered to be the uh, continuation of Adam Waffen division, the national socialist order. Um, and so they, they enjoy the same kind of terrorist listing that, that Waffen did.
0: When you look at what kind of threat they pose, I mean, you know, a lot of this again happens online. Realistically, when we think back to the groups of the past, I was thinking so much about, you know, it's the anniversary of the seven seven bombings today, the eighteenth anniversary. What, how we defined terrorism eighteen years ago? What the threat looked like? And then I was obviously in Europe for a lot of the time that ISIS was on the rise, the radicalization of you know disaffected young men. This seems so familiar, but I wonder what the threat is as far as the the hate network is concerned. Where is the threat from these groups? And are we it already
1: oh certainly um i mean it's important to point out that uh, mcdonald himself has has not been accused of any any violent crime but one of the main goals of the adam division um, in their propaganda production um the videos and the images that they became known for that the mcdonald is accused of playing a hand in um it was to was to inspire that type of action um you know there was a lot made of kind of this idea of a, a white jihad um, when they started to incorporate that into their propaganda. Um, and it's not to say that they find particular common cause with, with those types of radical ideologies, but the, the idea and the aesthetic and the um, motivation is something I think that they wanted to, to pass on to individuals. As far as like, what is the extant threat? If we look at um, the man who's kind of credited as being the original leader of the Waffen division, an American named Brandon Russell, who went by Odin online. Um, he was jailed um, for about five years for possessing explosives, uh, released, and then almost immediately after, like several months after, uh, picked up again for planning to attack the U.S. power grid with his, his then-girlfriend. Um, they, they seek to inspire action, and they seek to you know, sometimes carry it out themselves.
0: One would expect that um, with another arrest already made, uh, with the length of time this investigation has already appeared to have taken, because we're talking already three, four years since uh, these these alleged offenses were meant to have occurred, uh, what do you expect to happen next? Clearly, they've been looking at this for a very long time. This is not a particularly large group. One gets the sense that they have a very good read on who exactly uh, took part in what here.
1: Yeah, it's hard to say about that because the law enforcement has certainly known who Mr. McDonald is for quite a period of time. Like dark, the dark foreigner persona went dark around 2019 um, when it was confirmed that he traveled to the UK, when McDonald traveled to the UK um, and then was detained by their, their intelligence service or security force um, for a number of days for questioning on his way back. Um, yeah, I, I don't necessarily know. What I don't have any particular insights into the investigation, other than what has been been said publicly. Um, other than that, I think what we are seeing, because the Waffen division is not an extant group anymore, as much as people will try to revive it. Um, but what has continued on is the network of individuals that were formed around AWD, um, and then the network that has formed around their ideas. So as much as there's not a Adam Atomwaffen proper, I guess you could call it anymore, um, there's kind of a, a skull mask network, as some researchers refer to it, that has continued the ideas and the motivation. And in relation to Dark Forner, continue to use much of his aesthetic to kind of color their, their movement and ideas.
0: Right. I mean, the firsts are always a litmus test of things. Um, this will be a litmus test, I guess, of this as well. This as well, whether it's whether the whether the prosecution in this case succeeds or fails, which will be, uh, it could set quite the precedent if it doesn't happen. Uh, you know, if if it doesn't go ahead, if they've made a mistake here.
1: Yeah, I'm certainly very curious about the second individual who was arrested and not charged. Uh, it seems like their property was likely also searched um, among the other ones last year. Uh, when they were investigating the the production of of these videos. Um, but yeah, I mean, what actually happens is anybody's guess, whether it'll go to trial, whether they'll um, plead out. Um, we will be watching it very closely, though.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. It's hard to imagine, but uh, it marks... We're, we've reached 500 days since Russia's further invasion of Ukraine that launched what has been a devastating war in that middle, in that eastern european country and that remains at the top of the agenda of course as nato allies including canada get set to meet for 2 days next week in vilnius in lithuania there will be a new member at the table in finland with sweden expected to follow soon and unity and purpose appears to be at a level for the alliance, not seen in quite some time, it has been since that invasion or further invasion. Still, leaders, including Prime Minister Trudeau, will face a number of questions and challenges when they gather from divisions over Ukraine's membership bid, Sweden's accession, uh, to boosting ammunition stockpiles and reviewing first defense plans. Uh, the first defense plans in decades—they've not really reviewed what to do in case. Of a Russia uh, aggression in in many many years, so they're going to have to do that as well. It's the fourth time they've met since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, they held one virtually back in February 2022, just one day after it began. They've been met in Brussels and Madrid, and again, you know, they'll be looking at modernizing Ukraine's armed forces, creating a high level forum for consultations, and to reaffirm reaffirm again that Ukraine will one day join the alliance. What the wording of that will be is not yet known. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is underscoring the consequences of Russia's war.
1: Russia's
2: war of aggression against Ukraine continues to rage on. For 500 days, Moscow has brought death and destruction to the heart of Europe, seeking to destroy Ukraine and divide uh, NATO.
0: Of course, those are the that is the pressing issue. There will be some long-standing issues on the table as well, such as military spending, an issue that's opened up Canada for criticism for years. Back at the Wales NATO Summit in 2014, allies committed to spend 2% of their GDP on defence by 2024, so that's coming up quick. And also to spend 20% of their total defence investment on equipment purchases and related R&D also coming up Canada apparently or Canada has done neither at this point and there is some speculation that the two percent of GDP language will be strengthened this time around only 11 countries actually meet that threshold but Canada really is at the back of the pack with less than 1.4 percent of spending of GDP on defense spending joining me now is David Berkison he's director for the center uh, of the center for military security and strategic studies at the University of Calgary David thank you so much sure no problem Tell me a bit about about this one because clearly Russia is front and center, but there are a lot of other issues percolating in and around the background. There's sort of the Far East. Japan's going to be there. There's Ukraine. What 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 kind of wording do you put forward on Ukraine's desire to become a, an alliance member? What really stands out for you going into next week's summit?
3: Well, there there is a general uh, problem that NATO's got right now with Hungary and with Turkey, with Viktor Orbán and. In Hungary and erdogan the president of turkey which is that they're both blocking sweden's desire to join nato now, that's a very very serious matter um i'm not sure how that can be resolved because turkey keeps putting new demands on the table and sweden is trying to meet those demands uh, the, the the swedes are ready willing and able to join nato they'd make a significant contribution to nato uh, unlike Canada, they've been taking care of their own defense for decades, and uh, we really do need them in the alliance, especially since they are sitting right next to finland so that's a that's a problem for NATO in general. The second problem is that NATO is going to move, i think, to demand a minimum of two percent of GDP to be spent on defense, and that that two percent of GDP be spent directly on defence and defence equipment, uh, uh, size of the armed forces and so on and so forth, and not on things like pensions and medals and uniforms and other stuff like that. Um, for Canada, the problem is that we're so far behind everybody else, uh, we don't take care of our own defence, uh, we're not spending enough, we're not, we're, our military forces are 10,000 at least, lower than they should be for the force that we're trying to put forward. Our Navy is in terrible shape, and I could go on and on and on and on and on and and spend another half hour telling you how bad the situation is, but it is really bad. And uh, Mr. Trudeau doesn't seem to care, and uh, his coalition partner, the NDP, seems to care even less.
0: Right. I, and this is one of those things, I mean, I've covered NATO summits. I was in Bucharest in 2008. Uh, I mean, there'll be a lot of kind words. There'll be a lot of unity in the statement, no doubt. But behind the scenes, one feels like because of the, I mean, the, the unity that we've seen uh, over Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the fact that the alliance has been brought together, Finland's now come in, Sweden presumably at some point will exceed, at some point. Um it feels like behind the scenes that Canada's the way that Canada lags behind here. I was mentioning off the top there was another commitment we made in Wales nearly ten years ago as well about a twenty percent spending on certain certain parts of our military. Neither yeah. of this is going to happen by next year. Neither of it. And at some point, the other NATO members are going to say, "Well, wait a second. Look, you've made these commitments. You're going to have to live up to some of them eventually."
3: Well, of course that's correct. Um, the the problem is that, you know, Mr. Trudeau represents Canada, and he and his party and his governing coalition don't put defense very high on the agenda. Uh, they did commit after many, many years of uh, maneuvering to finally purchase the F-35s, even after Mr. Trudeau said in the 2015 election that he would never buy it. Uh, But now we have to wait in line for many other countries that moved ahead and purchased it. Uh, So we won't be getting these airplanes, uh, the the full complement of these airplanes for many years now. Um, And, you know, you go down the line, you say, well, where are our new uh, frigates that we're supposed to be building? Where are our icebreakers? Where is anti-aircraft for our army? Where are new helicopters to replace the Griffins, which are 40-plus years old. Um, and you could go on and on and on. And the fact is that I think uh, Canadians generally have been very lax in thinking about defense. And now that we can see that the world is resort, we has has basically resorted to normal, in other words, we're back to where we were in the, in the days of the great power competitions and... Uh, and uh, diplomacy based on force and so on and so forth, uh, Canadians have got to get used to that new reality. And we're coming around very slowly to that fact.
0: Yeah, I mean even you know one when, when one looks at how the money is spent and this goes back over several governments uh, not just this current one uh, but yep. even wrapping it up now one wonders okay fine you know it's we we spend 1.3% of gdp which tails way behind many others even if we were to start spending a whole bunch more we can't really move that much money out so we're going to have to reach some sort of agreement with nato at some point where they're going to say well we're going to sort of chart out a well maybe they can't really chart out a course for us but we're going to have to establish yeah. some sort of uh, you know road marks along the way so that we could say listen we're improving that's exactly
3: right and i think you've got the point i think we have to show people that we are determined to do better and we have to lay out a plan to do better and you're right if the government were to dump let's say 10 billion dollars on the on the defense budget let's say within the next 12 months which is impossible like they can't do it but if they could do it They couldn't do it because there's nowhere to put the money because the establishment is too small because you have to grow your defense slowly. It has to fit together properly. You've got to have the right kinds of offices. For example, we have a huge procurement problem in this country. We're probably way behind most of our NATO partners when it comes to doing procurement properly. Well, one of the reasons is because we have such a small procurement office and people rotate that office through that office every 18 to 24 months or so. Well, how do you fix that? Well, you've got to hire more people. You've got to have more experts. You've got to have more uh, computer space and on and on and on. You can't do that overnight. You can't just dump uh, X billions of dollars on, uh, on national defense and say you fixed the problem because there's nowhere to put the money. So you, you've got to have a plan. You've got to have a way of expanding The defense budget that is logical, that you can do, instead of telling people behind closed doors that you'll never make the 2%, which is what Mr. Trudeau has done, you have to start showing that you're serious about this problem. And uh, I don't know whether they're going to start doing this at this upcoming meeting or uh, what it'll take to get this government off dead center.
0: I keep reading, uh, David, that there was a review of defense policy that was expected before this, presumably before this summit. I I don't, unless I missed something, I haven't seen it anywhere.
3: Well, you haven't missed anything. It's not there. I mean, maybe it's going on somewhere behind closed doors. And maybe that's a good way of doing it. I don't know, because the last time they did it, they they came up with a defense policy, strong, secure, engaged, that really was no defense policy at all. So maybe behind closed doors is the way to do it and reveal it to the nation. This is what we think we ought to be doing, and what's your response to it? Okay, well, let's see it. (laughs) You know, this is a a year and a half into this war in Ukraine. The situation in the South China Sea isn't getting any better. Our position in the Arctic isn't getting any better. Uh, Well, what's our defense plan? What are we going to buy? When are we going to buy it? Where is the money going to come from? Well, we need answers.
0: Looking ahead to the NATO summit in Vilnius next week. Coming up, David Burkeson is with us. He's director of the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies at the University of Calgary. We've already talked about Canada being under pressure for lagging behind in terms of its defence spending and commitments, as there is more and more pressure within NATO to meet those 2% requirements. Uh, David, a lot of other things going on as well. I gather they're going to be reviewing defence plans, which is a big one. And, of course, there's always the issue of Ukraine and NATO. How are they going to coach, the, as I said, I was in Bucharest back in 2000 Nate, when Ukraine was sort of given that very, very small door, opened that very small door to eventual membership, it looks like Ukraine's going to want more than that this time. And a lot of the allies are pushing for stronger language as well.
3: Well, I don't see anything going on with regard to Ukraine being part of NATO as long as this war continues. Because if Ukraine were to be admitted to NATO while the war is on, that means Russia's at war with NATO. And that's something well, we do you... certainly don't. We, yes, we, we yeah. certainly don't want that. So no. the question is, uh, how long will this war last? And what is Ukraine going to look like when this war is over? Now, I'm not optimistic about Ukraine, quote, winning, unquote, this war. A, a nation of 40 plus million people fighting a nation of 180 million people, it's just not on. And we can see right now with the slow pace of the Ukrainian counteroffensive that they're having a lot of problems. I think the way this thing ends is that eventually both sides are exhausted and we see some sort of a ceasefire, as we did in Korea in 1953, without any political resolution to the larger questions. And then the question is going to be, will, at that point, will NATO want to admit uh, Ukraine? And I think the answer is going to be, again, no, because Russian ambitions, at least as long as Putin is alive, Russian ambitions towards Ukraine are pretty obvious, And unless we want a war between NATO and Russia, which we don't want, uh, it's very difficult to see how that can happen.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, one gets the impression that somehow this is going to end up frozen the way that it was frozen in 2014, right? Just with yes. the borders, the borders slightly changed and, you know, some of the dynamics slightly changed. And certainly neither side, I think, in any position to go back to. I mean, certainly the Russians don't look like they can fight much more of a war here either. I mean, this war, it's clearly become a war of attrition here.
3: Yes, absolutely. I, I think that's,
0: that's correct. And that's what happened in Korea
3: in 1953, and so what we had was a ceasefire with no political resolution whatsoever, and I think that's the only way we're going to see this thing stop sometime within the next year or so.
0: This this review of, of, of I mean, I gather, of course, NATO hasn't really had a plan to deal with Russian aggression largely in a very long time, didn't need one right. particularly, yeah. uh, and now they're going to sit down and try to develop one again. Uh, what might that look like? Because that will also put some pressure on Canada as well. Of course it will. Now,
3: the question, of course, is uh, areas. Let, let, let me give you one, one specific kind of an example, which may involve NATO, but it certainly involves Canada. And that is this ridge that exists up in the Arctic, which crosses basically from Siberia to the Canadian Arctic archipelago, which is called the, the Monsonoff Ridge. Uh, we're part of the Arctic Council, which I, I don't know if it's still going to exist anymore with uh, with this war going on with Russia. But we've we've all all the Arctic Council members have been laying out plans for who's going to take what part of the Arctic seabed. The Russians have been exploring this ridge for years, and they're going to claim all of it, which means that Russian territory, if this was to be agreed to, Russian territory would in effect extend across the North Pole and into our part of the Western Hemisphere. Now, Russia's got the icebreakers. Russia's got the Arctic uh, equipment that it needs. Russia's got the Arctic military. We have none of that. When they say, "Okay, we're going to claim this entire ridge, what are we going to say? We're going to say, oh, sorry, we've got our own claims on this ridge. And they're going to say, how many divisions have you got? And the answer is, we don't have any. So to what extent is NATO going to get involved in questions like that? We've got Japan coming to this meeting, as you pointed out. Uh, the South China Sea issue, there was just a story the other day about how uh, all of a sudden uh, Chinese fishing vessels, quote unquote, are showing up in Philippine waters. mm mm-hmm. um, Is NATO going to have anything to do with that? I mean, China's obviously trying to dominate the entire South China Sea. Uh, Is is NATO going to get involved in that? Will NATO extend membership to Japan? Then it's no longer the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It'll be something else. But that's another question that NATO has got to get involved in. To what extent will they allow China to continue to expand its military presence along the perimeter of the South China Sea? Well... Is that a NATO question? A year ago, two years ago, we would have said, no way. Now, maybe it is.
0: Yeah, I mean NATO sort of refound its focus given this, this you know uh, focus on Russia. It feels also feels so familiar for NATO. But we saw what happened to NATO ten years ago when it was Afghanistan and other places, and it sort of yeah. got lost in its mission. And you're right; it's they're going to have to figure out what they stand for as well because it's it, with what's going on in Ukraine, it's become very clear what they think they need to do. But yeah. in the long term, you're right; there are many challenges out there.
3: Yeah. And it's not, it's not, I mean, it, and it's been pointed out by a lot of people, it's not just Ukraine, it's the Baltic states are next right. uh, on Russia's, Moldova is next on Russia's list. So the question is, uh, to, what, to what extent can we deter further aggressive action on the part of Russia or deter possible aggressive action on the part of China?
0: Well, they're all going to be in Vilnius, in Lithuania, next week, which is, of course, very close to uh, to, the, to a certain you know yeah. to parts of Russia. Uh, David Burkison, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Well, back when I was young, um, my dad had this cabin up north of Montreal in the Laurentians, at a place called Morin Heights, and every summer I would go and spend a couple of weeks there. Spend a couple of weeks with my mom, and she was living elsewhere in the country, and every summer. Like clockwork, especially when I was young, from the ages of about 11 to about 15, 16, I developed unbelievably terrible seasonal allergies every time I was up there. I mean, just the worst, you know, runny nose, stuffed up, eyes watering, misery misery every summer. And so I only had two choices, which was either enjoy the summer as is and just suffer uh, or try to enjoy the weather or, you know, take all this kind of really hardcore allergy medication that just kind of knocked me out and I couldn't enjoy any of it. So it was a bit of a catch-22 and I've never forgotten it. What's strange is that at a certain age, they simply went away. They just went away. I I, I suddenly stopped having them. I hadn't moved. I I was still living in the same part of – I was living in Montreal, essentially, still spending time in in Little Laurentians where Morin Heights is in the summers and so on. But I just didn't suffer anymore. Um, And it got me thinking about allergies. So I've always spent – you know, anytime people talk – anytime there's talk of allergy season, I'll always have a look to see what's going on because I always think one day, one day – I mean, I know what they feel like. So I always think one day they're going to come back. One day one day they're going to come back. So I was looking around online today for someone to put this into perspective, and comedian uh, Darren Streblo does a pretty good job of it. I suffer from allergies. I'm only allergic to two things, organic and inorganic matter. I didn't think I had allergies. I just said I had a really bad cold since preschool. So my mom, she used to treat the problem. She used to hose me down with Vicks VapoRub. And she liked that stuff too much on me. The air above me had this distorted look all the time. I get on the school bus in the morning; everyone got emotional instantly. First girl I tried to kiss got cured of her asthma, so yeah. praise the Lord. Yeah, comedian Darren Strebler there talking about allergies. So, so for me, it was chlortripleon, which was this really kind of not very nice tasting, quite heavy blue syrup that used to kind of knock me out, but that's what we used to have to take to try to combat the seasonal uh, the seasonal hay fever and so on. I guess we just called everything hay fever at the time. Um, so again, I've always been interested in allergies. I was allergic to cats too, and that went away. So I don't really know what happened. It's estimated over 3 million Canadians have food allergies. About one quarter of Canadians suffer from some sort of seasonal allergy. It's really, you know, many of us Can share can understand what it's like, right? To be allergic to something, and of course, of course, they come in different forms, and generally, you know, develop when your immune system mistakenly treats a harmless allergen like pollen or animal dander or a protein as a threat, right? And then you react to it. Um, But despite again, not suffering from them. I do I do pay attention to them. So, allergy seasons follow that trend of tree pollen in the spring, grass in the summer, ragweed in the fall. And this year I've been reading reports back since early spring that seemed to suggest that it was going to be a bad year in 2023. So, of course, I braced myself thinking maybe this is the year that they actually come back. Well, so far, so good in my case at least, but I know a lot of people out there suffer from allergies every year. We don't actually know much about them, which is odd. I thought we would know a lot more about allergies, but we don't really know how to cure them. Not really. Um, But we thought, okay, let's try and piece together some of this allergy puzzle. And to help us do that is Dr. Angeliki Barlas. She's an allergist and clinical immunologist at ARIA Medical Specialist Clinic in Port Moody, BC. She's also a clinical instructor at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Barlas, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I know this is the most basic of questions. I think I covered it in a very non-scientific way, but why do we have allergic reactions to stuff?
4: Yes, that's a good question. Um, It's honestly the the best answer here is we're not really sure. Um, A lot of research has been done, um, you know, across the country and across the world, actually, and figuring out, you know, why do some children develop allergies and others don't? Why do some adults develop allergies? Why others don't? Um, And, you know, I think it's broken down into two uh, groups, Um, we have to think about it as, you know, the genetic side of things. So, you know, uh, family history, uh, familial disposition. Um, genetics in a sense as to why that happens. And another part of it is environmental exposure. Um, So a lot of times what can happen is depending on where you live, um, whether you live, you know, out in the West coast uh, in British Columbia or out in the East in Ontario, Quebec, um, there's different allergens that you can be exposed to. And with that exposure comes sensitization. So um, the body's immune system um, recognizes certain things um, and certain allergens as foreign and mounts these allergic responses. So it has a lot to do with both of those things. I think both genetics and um, environmental exposure, for sure.
0: We certainly know what happens when uh, when the immune system sees something it doesn't like, right? It, it creates that, 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 and I know there's a wide variety of reactions, but it creates those allergic reactions that many of us are familiar with, them, especially the milder ones.
4: Exactly, exactly. Yes. And, you know, those common allergies that probably most of the country is feeling right now. um, We're actually across the country. We're in grass pollen season right now. So um, if you are allergic to grass pollen, you'll feel, you know, the itchy eyes, runny nose, congestion, um, and sometimes people might even get some asthma symptoms. So yes, we're definitely feeling that right now.
0: Is it common for them to come and go, Uh, especially, you mentioned it earlier, I mean, sometimes in my case, I had them uh, quite, uh, quite violently as a kid, and then suddenly they just disappeared. And I noticed that other people get them as they get older, too, develop, sometimes it's a food allergy, sometimes it's a seasonal allergy. I guess we don't really know why that happens, but it does happen
4: that's great that's right yeah and it, i think it has a lot to do with exposure um you know for some people and i've had patients myself who you know they've um, you know moved to different areas of the country and in one place they're completely fine have no allergies and in another place um, they have terrible allergy symptoms. And I think that has a lot to do with exposure and the type of allergens that are in different areas. Um, you know, from one place to the next, um, there's different allergens. And um, another thing it has to do with is pollen counts. So we're seeing year to year, the pollen counts changing. Um, and that has a lot to do with climate change. Um, so year to year, there might be, uh, you know, different amounts of pollen throughout the spring and summer, um, and that can change year to year. So I find that some patients say, you know, this year, I'm um, fine. Last year, I was terrible. So it really depends.
0: Yeah, that pollen count. uh, I I understand that it's been going up progressively for the last couple of decades at this point.
4: Yes, it has. Yeah. And I think it has a lot to do with, as I said, you know, climate change, the warming of the earth. Um, Mm. uh, Definitely the pollen counts have changed.
0: This year, I gathered, I know I was reading and I went back a little bit into into early March to see what the predictions would be for this year. And it was predicted that we had kind of a cold spring and then it would heat up really quickly and it would be kind of a bad allergy season, short but bad. And that's, I I don't know whether the allergy season was short but bad or has been or is, but that's exactly what happened. I mean, weather-wise, that's exactly what's happened.
4: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: So, so what's happened with allergy season? I mean more or less we I guess, I guess BC is not a bad barometer of it because Quebec, Ontario and BC tend to have the worst allergies because of all those trees. Uh, but or or all the all the pollen that's around. But have we seen that this year? Has it been bad?
4: Yeah, definitely. I think we've we've seen a delay for sure um given that we've had such a Uh, you know, a nasty winter, Um, you know, with that, with that winter, with that cold weather, we're seeing the pollens becoming dormant, right. Um, And not coming out as quickly. But of course, when the, when, you know, the weather heats up, the pollens are coming out with a vengeance and we're finding that the pollen counts have been much higher, Um, you know, from patient to patient uh, that varies. Um, And and of course, you know, we can see pollens going into, you know, September, October as well, depending on how warm it is um, and how lengthy the summer can be. Um, so there's definitely a variation.
0: Right. So more pollen and longer summers or longer hot weather means more allergies, more seasonal allergies, at least for for those who suffer from them. That's right. Yeah. What, what are you seeing just to just a, you're on the front lines of all this. So what have you seen this year? Are you seeing anything different at all? Or are, are you seeing people coming in who are developing allergies now that hadn't had them in years past?
4: Yes, definitely. Um, I, I in my practice, I see a lot of adult patients, but I also see children as well. Um, with adults, it's very interesting. Um, you know, for some adults, they might have had very bad allergies as a child, but then subsides as they become adults and become older. And that has a lot to do with the immune system um, becoming, you know, weaker in a sense and not mounting that immune response to allergies. Uh, but other adults say, you know, I've never had allergies before, and now all of a sudden, I'm developing symptoms, and that That might have to do with the amount of exposure they have, the amount of sensitization. Um, you know, for children as well, seasonal allergies tend to come out later in life. So we're finding that, you know, young children, you know, below the age of 10, they don't have a lot of seasonal allergies, but as they age, um, that comes about. And that has a lot to do with environmental exposure as well.
0: Right. And it's remarkable how many people suffer from them, and yet we still don't have a full picture of them or we still don't fully understand them, right?
4: Yes, that's right. Yeah, I think a lot of researchers are trying to figure that out. And it can be quite difficult for sure.
0: Dr. Angeliki Barlas is with us. She's an allergist and clinical immunologist uh, at the Aero Medical Specialist Clinic in Port Moody out here in BC, a clinical instructor at UBC as well. Now, this is always the the million dollar question. I know, obviously, I have lots of friends with kids who have food allergies, and there's been quite a bit of success in in treating kids with food allergies. But other than that, it seems like adults especially are kind of left to cope.
4: That's right. Yeah. Um, Now, you know, slowly we're starting to see um, immunotherapy, which is a type of desensitization therapy for food allergies. Um, And that's specifically been studied in children, especially, unfortunately, not so much in adults. Um, but you know, in a sense, we, we do have a similar treatment, um, for environmental allergies as well. Um, we do have desensitization treatment through the form of allergy shots, which have been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also have allergy, um, under the tongue tablets or sublingual tablets, we call them, um, to treat allergies and desensitize the body to allergies. So there are options for that.
0: Right. And, and do they work? I mean, I, I remember clearly that medication improved vastly over the years. It's become much less potent, or at least it's adapted a lot better to the person taking it. But what kind of advice do you have in terms of if you're suffering from them, and there is really no cure, not, not really much of a cure, what can you do?
4: Yeah. Great question. Um, you know, I always tell patients, there are a variety of things that you can do or try your best anyway, to eliminate, um, environmental exposure. So, um, you know, when you are outside in the pollen season, trying to take a, you know, preventative, uh, antihistamine and allergy medicine, um, something like uh, reacting or Claritin, um, something that might be useful. And I usually recommend doing that, you know, a half hour to an hour before going outdoors, um, and then, of course, you know, trying to eliminate any type of pollen exposure by, you know, having a shower immediately after washing your clothing, doing all of those uh, preventative measures. And then, of course, medications-wise, uh, making sure you're using non-drowsy antihistamines. Uh, we don't tend to like using the drowsy types, such as diphenhydramine or Benadryl, um, since it has quite a lot of side effects and can be quite sedating. So something non-drowsy. And there's also uh, over-the-counter um, uh, nasal sprays um, out there as well. The steroid nasal sprays. I tend to advise my patients not to use decongestants very often, just because again, they have side effects as well. Um, So there are a lot of medications out there. You can always, you know, ask your family doctor or, you know, if you are referred to an allergist, they have uh, suggestions for that as well. Um, And the pharmacists are very great at, at, uh, you know, uh, giving you some information about medications as well. So that's definitely one option. And then if your allergies are still very bad after that, you can be referred to your uh, local allergist um, to talk about desensitization treatment.
0: Right. I, I understand there's quite a quite a queue to quite a lineup to see allergists these days that you're in you're in hot demand.
4: Yes, yes. Unfortunately, you know, um, there aren't too many of us across the country um, in each province. So it can be very challenging for patients to um, see an allergist in a timely manner. Um, but, you know, we are trying our best to to see patients as promptly as we can.
0: What do you tell patients who come in and sort of, because I remember distinctly, I mean, there are times when your allergies get bad enough that you really feel feel like they're never going to go away, right? And then they do, and then they do. So I suppose there's always, especially for seasonal allergies, there is a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. But you've mentioned it, that you should really be careful with kind of, what kind of medication you take, because there's an awful lot of medication on the shelves. And in my case, I just tend to grab the one that's on sale, right? That's the yeah. which is probably not the right approach.
4: Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. Yeah, so just being very mindful um, to use uh, medications that, you know, are safe, uh, whether you're, you know, a child, an adult, um, patients who are breastfeeding or during pregnancy, making sure and checking with your uh, pharmacist that these are safe medications to take and with any other uh, medical conditions that you might have. Uh, but there are a lot and and there are prescription antihistamines available as well that your doctor can prescribe that are also non drowsy um so there's been a lot of developments now with great medications out there and treating uh environmental allergies for a lot of patients
0: right and uh, any any lot. i mean i suppose right now we're heading into uh into we're in grass season and we head into is it ragweed that comes next what is the what i'm trying to remember yes. what the sequence is
4: yes ragweed comes up um that's mostly going to be yes in eastern canada for sure
0: Right. Okay. So that's why I re- we. That's no wonder I don't. I don't suffer from it out, out west anymore because we don't have as much of it. Right.
4: Yeah. That's right. Yeah.
0: Right. Well, Doctor Barles, thank you so much for your time. Have a nice weekend.
4: Thank you so much.
0: You know who might need some relaxing music right now? Something to really soothe his frayed nerves is Elon Musk because he has been tweeting up a storm um, the past little while, the past twenty four hours or so, all about uh, Mark Zuckerberg, his rival. You know these billionaire tech guys, uh, and his launch of Threads. Now, Meta's Meta, you know, the company that owns Facebook and Instagram, Mark Zuckerberg's company, has launched this new sort of Twitter-like thing called Threads. I don't know if you've used it or seen it, but it looks a lot like Twitter. It's sort of a feed, but it's set up a bit differently. It's linked, in fact, to Instagram, which Meta owns as well. And that is why it's been so remarkably successful already. Because, of course, there are two big Billion apparently daily active users of Instagram. I, I don't use it much, but two billion. So already it was launched Wednesday evening. This Threads thing, and uh, you know they had within hours two million people had downloaded it, and it's up to seventy million already, way beyond expectations according to Mark Zuckerberg. And one report I saw tonight said there had already been ninety five million posts and one hundred and ninety million likes. On the site. So if you've seen Twitter, you know, Twitter's been in the spotlight a lot since Elon Musk paid, what, $42, $44 billion for it and then proceeded to try to monetize it and kind of drove it into the ground. So, you know, I was a long time Twitter user. I am because of work. It helps, obviously, to find ideas and catch up on the news, see what different newspapers are talking about, see what different experts are talking about. Uh, But it's become a bit of a bad place to be, like, it's just not as much fun as it used to be. So clearly, there are people out there, many, who are looking for some sort of alternative. At the same time, there are Instagram users who may never have bothered with Twitter at all, who are looking at this new thing and thinking, well, that seems kind of okay. You know, there's pictures and it's a longer, you get to write more, longer videos. Uh, It doesn't flow quite the same way as Twitter, but that's really not that important. I think what's really interesting here is this whole fight between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk over this territory this this idea of what twitter is this sort of feed that you can read that makes you feel like part of a part of something part of a community right that's really what it's all about in the long run it informs you and you feel like you're part of something uh, and therefore you will go back to it and scroll through it sometimes scroll a little bit too much like like in my case so anyway um elon musk again not happy at all they've been even th- you know they've been threatening to fight each other in a mixed martial arts cage match or something so this is kind of like the technological equivalent of <laughs> up there of the first blow which is mark zuckerberg lands it with this thing called threads twitter has in fact threatened legal action against meta over threads it launched uh and you know I don't really know what the basis of it would be, but Ahmed Benafa is with the engineering department at San Jose State, right in Silicon Valley. He thinks it's more bark than bite.
5: Yeah, it's uh, it's basically shooting in the dark. It's like a, a blanket a letter saying, um, you know, you hire people, you took the technology. Uh, preserve or the documentation of recruitments. There is no something specific about it saying that we found this one. Well, we're telling you that we're gonna go after it if we find something about it. So it's it's a distraction. They want to slow down the momentum. We are talking about forty million joined so far. So they see a real threat here.
0: There you have it. Let's put this into perspective. At last count in May of twenty twenty two, Twitter had about two hundred and twenty nine active monthly users. I think that's probably down by now. Um, threads by the way i should i should say instagram has 2 billion monthly active users not daily active users sometimes sometimes you yeah, the mind plays tricks. Two billion monthly active users. So Threads is now available to that huge network of people. Uh, I don't know how many will actually take it. It's very easy to sign on. I did it in a few seconds. I don't like it as much as as, as Twitter yet, or, or I'm not quite sure how to use it yet. But with that many people, and you create that kind of community, maybe, just maybe, maybe, just maybe, this will be the one that actually rivals Twitter. Uh, it's already the most downloaded free app uh, out there. Instagram is 8th, Twitter is 26th. So what to make of this power struggle? So many, and again, pardon the pun, so many threads to pull out in this one. Uh, technology analyst and journalist, Carmi Levy, joins me. He's a regular on the show. Carmi, thanks so much. Welcome back.
5: Great to be back. Thanks for having me,
0: Ben. Well, this is such a great story because, I mean, regardless of whether you use Twitter or whether you have any intention of using threads or you don't like social media at all, there's some real high drama playing out amongst, honestly, two of the world's richest men. Uh, How did this all begin? I mean, threads sort of came out of nowhere, but they seem to have been working on it for a while.
5: They do. I mean, software isn't developed overnight. These are massive projects, you have millions of lines of code, hundreds of developers, possibly thousands all working as a team. So we know that they announced that we started hearing noise about it late last year, around the same time that Elon Musk bought uh, Twitter. But I wouldn't be surprised if this had been in the works for years. And it was just kind of in the back, in the back room. Developers kind of do that. They have Stuff they're responsible for during the day, but then like at lunchtime and evenings and weekends, they get together and they do all sorts of crazy things. And I'm pretty sure this thing is very long in development. Um, and 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 I think you know it 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 echoes or aligns with uh, the history between these two very larger than life characters. They don't like each other. This this goes back years. It goes back to when, uh, you know, uh, the, the Facebook had rented space on an Israeli satellite. And while it was sitting on top of the Falcon 9 rocket during testing, it exploded. And Mark Zuckerberg said some very not nice things about how SpaceX blew up their satellite. That didn't sort of sit too well with Mr. Musk. And from that point forward, they've been duking it out over artificial intelligence, over the relative size of their fortunes, the profitability of their respective companies. Every opportunity, these two have to go at it with each other. They seem to take it. And it's kind of fun watching them snipe at each other. Uh, and now, apparently, they want to they want to trade words for you know, like actual blows. And I think it's one of the most... Hilarious chapters in tech. Yeah.
0: yeah, who needs that? This cage match they've been talking about between <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. Instead, they they're gonna fight it out over these over these apps. Uh... The thing about threads that's interesting is, A, it looks a lot like Twitter, but it's not, and B, it leverages, and if people don't know how this works, there are 2 billion monthly active users of Instagram, which is about 10 times more active users, uh, or not 10 times, but but you know several <laughs> times more than Twitter has, um, and, and they're leveraging that, right? I mean, they essentially tied it to Instagram, and that gives them a real running start when it comes to attracting the all-important first users to this thing.
5: It is the key point of differentiation. There have been some other sort of what we call Twitter killers out there in recent months. There, you know, Mastodon is one. Hive Social is another. Post News, uh, Blue Sky, which also comes from Jack Dorsey, who was the guy who invented Twitter in the first place. So there are a bunch of these other apps out there that you know claim to do better than Twitter and try to, t- to take Twitter's crown. But they would, they would, millions of people would download them. They'd use them for a little bit, and then they'd look around and they go. there's nobody here it's like a ghost town with tumbleweed flying down main street I, i like i'm bored so they would just stop using the apps and they'd sit deep on their smartphones gathering dust and no one would ever hear from them again what's different here is that threads is built on the instagram platform so basically what it does you download the app it's its own app but then when you sign in you use your instagram username and password and then it pulls All of your contacts from Instagram over and then you can follow them. They can follow you. So from the moment that you first start using threads, you've got a network. That's the power of the network. And I think Meta to its credit recognizes that social media, it's not about the app or the features or anything like that. It's are you surrounded by your friends? Are you surrounded by people who you like and you want to hang out with and, and that you can talk to? And Threads made it easier than pretty much everyone else because, let's face it, Meta owns these properties that have billions of people following them anyway. Why don't they just use those and bring them over here. And I think it's a masterstroke. I would do the same thing if I were Mark Zuckerberg and had billions of dollars.
0: Yeah, invariably it's like going to a party, right? If you walk in and it's hopping, you'll stay. And if it's not, you'll try. You'll <laughs> look. You'll look for the door. And this one is hopping already. I mean, we'll see what happens. It's early days yet, but you know, tens of millions of people already on the platform within you know forty eight seventy two hours that in itself is is a good start and clearly they're taking advantage of of a bunch of things but why would I mean you know Elon Musk stumbles at Twitter amongst them but why would they get into this space now where is their where is the opportunity in all this because clearly Twitter has never been particularly pro- profitable. so where does meta see the opportunity here?
5: Uh, I think they're hoping to make up for the fact that Facebook and Instagram, which are their two major platforms they also own whatsapp. Are kind of aging out. If you look at the demographics of Facebook, you know my twenty-something kids no longer use it. They still have their their accounts, but they're barely active on it. Uh, and certainly, if you're in your teens or early twenties, you've already moved on to Snapchat and TikTok, and Facebook isn't even on your radar. Instagram isn't quite there yet, but it is getting there. Their demographics are shifting older, and so they're not growing. They're huge already, so they're not really growing. And so, what Facebook or what Meta is doing is saying, okay, where? Are the growth opportunities where can we sort of find a niche social media slice that isn't really being taken advantage of now and you know social media it's been around for 15 20 years there aren't a whole lot of net new opportunities and so they're looking at twitter saying hey they're kind of ruining a good thing a lot of people are probably going to want to leave twitter soon let's go for that and that's kind of where we're at now is that you know of all of the the, the relatively few opportunities remaining in social media land Twitter's pie, even though it's small, if it's done right, it can be uh, influential, it can be profitable, it can be engaging, and it can form the basis for other businesses that can bring in revenue and and revitalize their their other uh, titles. But of course, you have to do it right. uh, And you have to make sure that you're in the right place at the right time so that when everyone at Twitter is looking for the exits, they come to you first.
0: Yeah. How much do you think, I mean, clearly Elon Musk's stumbles at Twitter and and they can't be described as anything, but I mean, his, his, his Herculean attempts to alienate half the people who use the, use the app certainly have opened the door for Facebook or Meta rather to kind of walk into this space and see if they can't make a go of it.
5: Yeah. I kind of use the term self-inflicted and every time Elon Musk kind of skids from one bad decision to another, I just shake my head and I'm like, like the guy figured out reusable rocketry and electric vehicles. How can he be so just stupid on in this one? Like, it's almost like it's a different Elon Musk running Twitter than the same guy who ran Tesla uh, and SpaceX. He just cannot seem to catch a break, cannot seem to figure it out. Um, I think Elon Musk is so focused on the fact that he paid $44 billion for the company that he leveraged himself. Uh, For a while, he was no longer the world's richest man. His fortune is is at risk here. Uh, And he's so focused on revenue and, you know, basically sort of slapping the company into submission and all of the people who work for it, that he doesn't really understand the subtlety of social media is about people. And if you're not going to charge people to access your services the value is the people and what they post. And and you have to treat them with respect. And he's really never been one about treating people with respect. He, a lot of people who work for him report that he's a very difficult taskmaster, and it's either his way or the highway. So I think he, he, he runs companies very well. He doesn't run social media companies very well, and he's basically left the door open for someone to come along and eat his lunch. Uh, and Meta, it's like the perfect timing. It, right after Elon Musk introduces this new feature that limits the number of tweets that we can see in a given day, which is totally, it's like anti-social media. Uh, Along comes Meadow with threads and says, hey, you know, we've got an alternative and we won't yeah, we'll make come, it a lot more fun.
0: Come over here. This party is a lot more fun. <laughs> Carmi Levy is a technology analyst and journalist we're talking about to the launch of Threads. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Meta have launched a rival to Twitter. It looks a lot like Twitter. It's not exactly like there are different features to it. It doesn't exactly use the same way, but it's very early days yet. It's certainly, it certainly feels a lot like it. There's no mistaking the fact that it has been launched to rival and compete with Twitter. Uh, interesting, uh, Carmi, that uh, that elon musk has been all over his own platform uh today sort of bashing mark zuckerberg bashing threads and there was something about some sort of legal letter sent as well so i don't know what you could deduce by the reaction to it but he wasn't nearly so critical of some of the other ones this one he obviously recognizes a real threat when he sees one
5: yeah i have a funny feeling mark zuckerberg definitely you know he had he a nerve in mr musk uh in launching the tool and you know mastodon uh, and all the others weren't a threat and i think elon musk saw that and he basically didn't give them any attention because he didn't have to uh they were they launched they flared for a little bit and then they disappeared uh, but obviously threads is a very different animal and the fact that he's having his lawyer write a cease and desist letter that he's accusing Meta of poaching their staff and of, you know, taking state secrets from Twitter and using them in the architecture and the design of this new Threads app. Uh, shows that he's he's staying up at night and he's concerned and he's worried uh, and 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 that's Elon Musk right he he's he's a pretty thin skinned individual and it's pretty obvious when he's ticked off versus when he's not uh, and uh, right now he's running scared so he's firing off the letters and he's uh, sending angry tweets and uh, he's basically being the petulant billionaire boy toy that he's always been. Uh, and now it's on full display for anyone who, you know, wants wants to watch an interesting show. What are you going to
0: look for now? I mean, clearly, uh, Threads to be a success is going to need to gain momentum. People are definitely going to give it a shot. Doesn't mean they're going to stay there. Uh, yeah. So what are you going to look for then in the next little while? And also, you know, on, on the other side of his more successful business, perhaps, Elon Musk has been quite willing to, to change course when it came to Tesla, for instance, in China. He dropped prices. He's giving rebates to try to, because it's heavily competitive there. He could also make some moves, too. So what What will you
5: be looking for in the next little while in this uh, very big battle between these two tech, tech giants? The word that I'm looking for, Ben, is sustainability. It's one thing to download, you know, have millions of people download your app today and cause a big brouhaha. It's a very different thing that all of those millions of people now start to use the app every day consistently for days, weeks, months, years, that the app now becomes, they put it on the front screen of their smartphone. It's not buried deep. It's right next to Facebook and right next to TikTok and right next to Twitter. And it becomes part of their, you know, just their daily thing you know you you check with this feed you check that feed and you check your threads feed Uh, and what and so that of course that transition very few other companies have managed that that's really the key here is what will their daily active user counts be a month from now their monthly active user counts be 6 months from now we're watching those numbers and seeing how they compare uh, and also we're kind of looking at uh, you know Elon Musk's response you know he's been so focused on internal efficiencies really not understanding the value of the people who populate his platforms almost punishing you if you if you're not willing to pay for a twitter blue subscription he will need to change that tune. He will need to recognize that running a social media business is a very subtle uh, uh, skill in leadership that he does not seem to have. And so, will he? allow his new CEO, Linda Yaccarino to kind of take more of the reins and be more of the face of the company? Will he learn to curb his worst instincts? Will he allow the social of social media to finally start uh, leading at Twitter? Because it hasn't been for a very long time and it's not really a happy place to be. He needs to back away from his political leanings and stop using those to help color where Twitter is going because he's turning off a lot of people in the process. So you know, will he have the maturity to do that? Uh, he he recognized it at Tesla because he was that, you know, terrible micromanager there for a while till he learned to leave it to the adults in the room. He did the same thing at SpaceX, learned to hand the reins over to his CEO, COO Gwyn Shotwell. Uh, and now of course SpaceX is kind of beyond reproach. Uh, you know, he needs to reach that same point at Twitter, but based on what I'm seeing right now so far yeah. this week. We're He's not, not quite there yet. yet. He's <laughs> not there yet. Not
0: not at all. He's been raging today. Uh, Carmi Levy, thank you so much great being here, Ben. Thank you. This is an interview we ran a couple of weeks ago, and often on on Friday nights, we'll try and take you back, but you may have missed this. Of course, you can always listen to the podcast. You can find it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts or at a little more conversation.com. Don't forget to like it. Um, but we had this on a few weeks ago. I really enjoyed it, and I felt like this would be a good one to play again. A Canadian retail success story is marking its 30th anniversary this year. It was back in 1993 that Cindy Lee, who'd come to Canada in the 70s from Taiwan, founded TNT Supermarkets. She opened two stores in the Vancouver area along with some investors in just six months. Now, if you're in any big city in this country, and I know they're all over the place, we don't have one in Victoria yet, but and because they, it's explained to me, I'll explain it when we're done. Um, but TNT are absolutely everywhere. They become Canada's most popular, its largest Asian supermarket chain, and its most popular with 30 stores in BC, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec, some 10,000 employees. There's been a lot of milestones along the way, a 2009 sale to grocery giant Loblaw, and in 2014, the handing over of the company from mom to daughter. Uh, to Tina Lee, along with her sister Tiffany. They happen to be the TNT in TNT, by the way. It's Tina and Tiffany, thus TNT in the name. So it only made sense that Tina Lee, the eldest sister, would take over uh, the company from her mom, Cindy. And now they're set to expand outside of Canada, just a small step across the border into the U.S. in the Seattle area, but still a significant one that's a massive market. And if you can find a foothold in it. I mean, there's a lot that can happen after that. They've also, uh, they're also opening a regional office in LA. That, uh, that store in the Seattle area is expected to open next summer. And so a lot to talk about. And the origin story of TNT is a pretty interesting one as well. So CEO Tina Lee uh, spoke with us a little while back. I, of course, started her by thanking her.
6: Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. And just for a reference, my sister's name is Tiffany. So that's the right. fun part. Tina and yeah. Tiffany
0: yeah amazing. and this goes back i mean i've been reading some some you know story the origin stories and your mom and how she set it up back in the 90s uh is, is it true that that as children you used to spend a lot of time sort of going store to store kind of with a, with a your mom's critical eye looking to see if and there was never quite the perfect fit for her thus the idea to create TNT
6: Yes, that's exactly it. My uh, parents immigrated to Vancouver in 1978, and during that time, like it was pretty hard to shop for Asian groceries. Like you had to go like the only destination was Chinatown, and it's a cute, quaint place. But um, to do a very full shop, you had to go from the butcher shop to the seafood shop to the produce shop to the bakery shop, and you know, Vancouver, it's raining all the time. So right. <laughs> And and it's hard to find parking. <laughs> so,
3: right.
6: so that was um, a difficult in, endeavor most of the time. You know, what could she compare the experience to was shopping at the Safeway down the street from where we lived. And it was just night and day. Uh, Safeway at the time was like clean and bright and said, well, we would like a version of this for the Asian community. And um, uh, my father was in the food import business. At first, we, that's where we started. That's where our roots are. And uh, we transitioned and dad said, mom, I want you know, you should run the retail business. And that's how the first store got started.
0: And, and I mean, it's been 30 years now. Time does fly, doesn't it? But, but it, the, the success of it has been, has been remarkable, really. I mean, from, from those early days, uh, in, on the lower mainland, well, in near, in and around Vancouver. Uh, what do you think the key to that success has been? Because I know there have been others who've tried to do this who haven't quite succeeded. Uh, but somehow t found the right, the right note with its customers.
6: Yeah, honestly, uh, when I get to chat with my mother and we do the look back, it's pretty incredible how the business has been so well received by different communities all across the country. Uh, we started in uh, the greater Vancouver area, but now we're in Edmonton and Calgary and Toronto, and we never dreamed we'd be in Montreal one day, and now we are. So um, what's the key to that success? You know, I think it started very early with, um, well, my mother being a mother, and what other mothers need, making life easy for them, prioritizing fresh, prioritizing uh, the clean and bright environment. And I think for us more than some of the other grocers is we had a very big focus in prepared foods, like the in-store bakery, the in-store hot food meals, like that's hard to find over the last 30 years. We've sharpened the, the expertise in that area. And I think that also brings, you know, a great, flavor for home for a lot of uh, first-generation immigrants, but also just a great exploratory experience for non-Asians.
0: Right, because clearly the the way you the way the stores are are sort of pre- presented and 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 the way they run and you've called it a complex it is a complex store when you go in because there's a lot going on in a TNT uh you know from from the seafood to the prepared food to to everything to the produce uh but how have you had to shift as you've moved across the country because you're in markets that clearly where there were there was a lot of, of first generation and you know new arrivals to Canada in places mm-hmm. like Richmond for instance but then if you go to a place like London Ontario for instance where mm-hmm. I th- I think a place you know well uh that changes, right? You kind of have to alter a little bit, or have you found it? The formula pretty much works wherever you go.
6: You know, it is very fascinating how, um, you know, I would say that our customer base and people that are gravitating towards TNT, it's expanding. So, you know, I think one thing we do well and why we started the business in the first place was to bring this feeling of nostalgia and a bit of home to first generation East Asians. You know, the country is growing. And so we certainly have that base and the affection from that community. But what's different and evolving as time goes on, and as we build out more stores, is that all Canadians now are finding TNT a really wonderful shopping experience. You go in and you just Fuel the energy. I mean, we we really tried to make that experience a wonderful shopping experience. And the same way, Asian or not Asian, like almost everybody in Canada, which is a a very, I would say, mature cultural palette, more than other countries, right? Canadians have a maturing cultural palette and everybody has their own favorite Japanese restaurant, favorite dim sum restaurant. You know, I think it's becoming like, well, if everybody has their favorite Asian grocer, it is not intimidating to go to a specialty grocer that focuses on Asian flavors, uh, because that's you know very much a part of living in Canada. That is becoming mainstream. So what is cool about our ability to open in newer markets is actually our ability to appeal to a wider audience. It's people of all cultures that is shopping at TNT now. We haven't changed, I mean we have we have been become better experts at what we do. But the essence of what we do has not changed. We know exactly who we are, but we, uh, we're just sharing that now to a bigger audience who appreciate what we do. I would also say meat, seafood, produce, you know, those categories obviously have universal appeal and, uh, we're getting better and better at that.
0: Grocers have come under a fair amount of heat lately from customers. One thing I do notice when I go to a TNT is you almost have an army of customers who are very price aware. Uh, Mm -hmm. That must be complicated because there are, we know that the whole, the grocery industry is complicated and complex. Supply Mm -hmm. chains are complex, but you almost have in-house experts making sure that your prices are, are Kept in check to some extent. I, I don't know how that works business wise. That's not my forte, but I do notice it when I'm there in the store that you have a lot of people paying very close attention to price points.
6: Oh, so our, our TNT shoppers are price conscious. No matter what income, everybody loves the deal. As we go on in the next in these in these couple of years, like certainly all grocers are facing food inflation, and uh, as a management team, certainly we are very focused in allowing. All of our customers, no matter what income level, to shop the whole store with dignity. Like if you are on a budget, you can make it through the whole store and shop every department and get something for great value for money. So we are very conscious about that, and so uh, we're we're very focused on um, we're very focused on that. At the same time, we don't shy away from selling great value for money items that are high priced. So, for example, you know, TNT sells Wagyu beef, TNT sells live spot prawns. And so live spot prawns could be $29 a pound. Um, But for what it is, you know, the goal is great value for money. Right. And so um, I think uh, every grocer has a lot to do in that area. And uh, we're we're certainly no different. We hope that we do that better and better every day.
0: Tina Lee is the CEO of TNT supermarkets. Uh, you may have one in your neighborhood. There are certainly many across the country now. And uh there is another move coming now into the US which is which is exciting. Uh, you've chosen Seattle which sounds like a natural fit because of of your you know the company's knowledge of the lower mainland. Seattle is not that different a market. I mean I think a lot of people who live in and around Vancouver and Victoria have been there. Uh but but your decision to go to the to the US is a big one because it's a different market for you.
6: That's right. It's a, it's, it's a big one in that we're expanding outside of the country. But, you know, if you focus on the customer, the customer is actually quite similar and they are our customers today. It's really interesting when you ask, um, we can ask customers that are, uh, living in Seattle today. And I think TNT is somewhat of a household name, especially in the East Asian community in Seattle. Uh, and that makes the decision actually quite simple. We actually are simply serving the customer that we already have. On every American long weekend, we can see many, many customers are driving up into Richmond. They're having a great meal in Richmond. This is, which is a a wonderful food scene. And then stopping at TNT, filling up their groceries and then driving back to Seattle. Maybe one in ten Cars in our parking lot have Washington plates. Wow. We can also tell that on the American long weekends, like the credit cards that we are processing, like they're American credit cards. So um, in that sense, uh it's a, a very natural expansion, like you said, Ben. And we're simply getting closer to our customers. And we hope that the uh, uh, city of Bellevue and, and the greater Seattle area likes what we do when we get there.
0: Right, and you have knowledge of the states. I mean, you went to UCLA, right? So you've been you you kind of know what the American market is like, perhaps more than than some others. What's it been like for you? Was this always going to be sort of was this always your business to become the CEO of, or did, was that was that something that uh, that evolved over time as you went through your schooling and then went into your professional life?
6: Mm-hmm. I think it evolved over time. Let's see. So, I mean, obviously, I think mean, Asian families like to um, encourage family businesses. Uh, I am the eldest of three. So there's Tina, Tiffany, and my brother, Jason. TT and J just doesn't sound as nice. Right. So a little bit got a chef, got the chef when it comes to naming the business. <laughs> right. But um, it would not, it would be very normal for the family business to have gone to the sun, you know? Right. So, so really, even, it really makes it actually a really interesting story in that it's a matriarch story. It's a mother to daughter entrepreneurial story. And there's not that many of them. But I uh, I think it was somewhere that we evolved to. I came, I spent some time, like, as you know, at UCLA, and then I spent some time with uh, Deloitte Consulting before coming back. We had a very interesting milestone becoming part of the Loblaw family in mm-hmm. 2009. And so you know, jumping all in and, you know, handling that, um, that, uh, uh, that liaising between the two companies. Today we still operate fairly separate from the business, but it's certainly become not only a company that I, and a business and environment that I grew up in, you know, it feels so natural, but it's a business that I've come to love. Like it's, I find my job way more than a job. I think we are doing something really amazing, um, culturally advancing culture through food you know, providing food in a way we should, you know, celebrate the joy of it, have it become like who we are. And and in that sense, like, I'm all in, you know, I'm game. And doing something that's really special, not only for, you know, Asian Canadian families, but for all Canadian families. Like this is, you know, food and culture and has become like part of what's, you know, truly Canadian.
0: Yeah, and and that it must feel I mean, I know your mom is still involved, so and you must have to consult. I mean, it must be there must be both joys and, and the odd strain to take over the family business, especially from mom to daughter, right? There are there are um she'll always have an eye out on what you're up to, I I suspect. Or maybe not. Maybe I'm completely wrong.
6: Hmm. Um, you know, well, mom just wrote. An, A book,
5: right? yes. <laughs> yes. So
6: that's how she is uh, involved now in that. I think it's a great time. Like it was, it's our 30th year anniversary. And we talked about like sharing this very unique story. So she spent the last two years writing this autobiography and sharing some of these stories right now it's only in available in chinese we're working on the translation now but uh, i think we're more than a place that just sells bananas and bok choy i mean i think our 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 culture the way we do business the way we bring joy to people's kitchen tables there's a lot behind that it starts with the values of my mother and it's grown to become what the entire TNT team and our community has come to value and then also is It's like what we want to share, even with Americans. You know, what was so surprising about our latest announcement in Seattle was how many Canadians joined in in the conversation. Like, I feel like Canadians are cheering us on. And they're commenting and they're sharing to Americans that don't know what a TNT is. Like, they're typing in the blogs and saying, oh, well, let me tell you about TNT. (laughs) It's like they're cheering for the home team. You know, I, I just find that, you know, certainly really flattering and uh, excited about growing the business across the border.
0: Well, Tina Lee, it's been a great joy. Thanks so much for your time tonight.
6: All right, thanks, Ben.
0: This is quite the tall task. Um, the ocean, as we well know, it covers a vast amount of space on this planet, something like 362 million square kilometers. The five oceans cover 71% of the planet's surface yet. Even now, in 2023, uh, surrounded by all those advances in technology that allow us to know so much about so much, we don't know enough about what lies beneath them. Uh, The race is on to complete the mapping of the ocean's floor as we speak. Scientists, investors, militaries, private explorers are working, even competing, to obtain an accurate reading of what that vast terrain, the ocean floor, looks like. Um, The Race to the Bottom, as it's called, is detailed in a new book by a Canadian author and ocean journalist, Laura Trethewey, who made her debut a few years back with a book called The Imperiled Ocean, which did very well. Now, she grew up in Toronto, so really it was her imagination and books such as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea that spiked her love of the ocean itself, not being near one, kind of like myself, I was probably at least, I probably had to be like six or seven before I saw an ocean, I think. Um, And in The Deepest Map, her new book, she charts the high stakes race to chart the world's oceans. She collects a series of stories, she presents a collection of characters, all looking to better understand what lies deep beneath the surface. And Laura Trethewey, uh, author of her new book, The Deepest Map, The High Stakes Race to Chart the World's Oceans, joins me now. Laura, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. You know, one thing really stood out, it's early on in the book, but one thing really stood out, because I think I've used this term before, that we know more about, you know, space than we know about the ocean floor. We know more about the moon than we know about the ocean floor and how certain people, one person you spoke to specifically, really doesn't like that comparison. And it sort of encapsulates what this book is about in some ways.
2: Yep, that's right. That was a huge inspiration behind the book. Yes, this cliche that we know more about the moon and Mars than we do the bottom of the ocean floor. And it's sort of, it's sort of true. And it's sort of not true. This scientist that you're thinking of is this deep sea scientist, Alan Jameson, who has been involved in a bunch of ocean mapping expeditions and and ocean science expeditions. And he hates this, this, this phrase, because he feels like it, it it's not that impressive to say that we don't know very much about this, you know, dry, dusty moon planet, when we have this watery dynamic planet that we've barely mapped. So that, that cliche was really kind of kicked off the whole inspiration for the, the book, because I just wanted to know more about, you know, why do we care more about outer space than we do our own planet? And so that's, that's really where the book began. And it just took me on this tremendous journey through meeting all these different private explorers and investors and scientists and ocean mappers.
0: It is a community, and that's interesting because one would always think that it would somehow be mandated by, you know, mandate, and, and there is a, a project, a universal project going on, but one would always think, oh, well, you know, the countries, the UN's going to do this for us, right? Uh, but you point out, A, what a Herculean task it is because of just how big a land, you know, bland, it's the wrong word, how big, a big an area we're talking about, but also just how varied the efforts to map it are.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So... Um, one of the first things that I sort of set out trying to figure out with this book was just why is it so hard to map the ocean? Why has it taken us so long to even map the the little that we have mapped? So right now, the best maps we have are about 25% complete um, and less than 1% of the deep sea is explored. And as you mentioned, one of the main reasons for why we haven't mapped the deep sea is just the ocean is Gigantic. It covers 71% of the planet. And it's really hard to tell people who live on the other 29%, you know, how big that space is. Um, the ocean is just also really deep. It's a really hostile environment to work. So there's wind and water and waves that are all kind of conspiring against the ocean mapper, making it really difficult to be out there. Um, it's also, that makes it really expensive. All those practical reasons aside, the point is, it's really challenging to map the ocean. It's really expensive. But humans have done a lot of challenging, expensive things. So why haven't we done this? And so that kind of became the the focus of the book. Because we can do this right now, but we've chosen not to.
0: Is is there... I mean, I know we're trying to uh, by 2030. That's one of the, the missions here. I don't know how feasible that is. But to go back to the beginning of, of the story, did you ever figure out why it is? that we're, Is it just... It's infinitely difficult, right? I mean, I think that's part of it is it. it is it is very challenging. And there's a lot of, you know, the, you know, the sovereignty of the ocean is an interesting topic as well.
2: So, yeah, so there's a cost issue there. So it's probably going to cost about three to five billion dollars to map the bottom of the seafloor. That is what uh, this organization, Seabed 2030, who's trying to map the seafloor, that's the number that they put out. And, you know, $3 sounds like a lot of money, but it's really peanuts in the grand scheme of things. I mean, like the Department of Defense recently made like a $3 billion accounting error when it sent too much military aid to Ukraine. Um, Yes.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, When you put it that way, it's not a lot of I mean, it isn't a lot of money in the grand scheme of things, is it?
2: Mm -hmm, Yeah. But the sovereignty issue is also important. Nobody has a responsibility to map 50 percent of the planet. So that means it really falls down to the military who has, you know, national security priorities for mapping the ocean, or it falls to commercial and corporate corporations like um, we're doing fiber optic cables or deep sea mining, those groups are not particularly inclined to share those maps for science.
0: Right. I mean, I, I suspect there's probably more of, of the deep sea map than we know. Is that is that is that a logical conclusion?
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this was like a conspiracy theory that was sort of floating around throughout while I was reporting this book. And every time I had a chance to talk to somebody in the military or who had some sort of Navy background, I would ask this question. I would say, you know, like, what's in the vaults? Tell me what we have not mapped. And no one would sort of give a a specific answer. Everybody was, you know, a pretty good soldier and uh, didn't say what these vaults held. But yeah, definitely the most developed countries in the world, like the U.S., Russia, China, Britain, they probably have more maps than they're letting on. But at the same time, ocean mappers who really study this issue say even if all those countries were hoarding all these maps, there's still a lot of seafloor that we haven't mapped. So we definitely haven't got to all of it, but there's more out there than we know.
0: And you've mentioned, too, that uh, countries tend to be quite secretive about what they've mapped in what are considered their own territorial waters, right?
2: Yep. Yep, absolutely. So I think the U.S. is probably the only country that is really uh, sharing maps unconditionally. But a lot of countries sort of hoard their maps. You know, they're, they're, it's kind of a loss of control issue. They're worried about giving these maps out and what people are going to do with them. And so this organization, CBID 2030, that's trying to map the, the seafloor by the end of the decade, they're really, they're really challenged on that point. They have to spend a lot of time kind of convincing countries to share maps with them. And, you know, they try and do that as best as they can. But the, the thing is, is that maps are still considered, you know, kind of like a national security consideration. And so it's, it's really hard to get people to share
0: one always thinks of space exploration as being very much an organized thing, you know, the NASAs and, and the Canadian Space Agency and, and you know, and the, and the many other, the few others out there that do this. And it's all very organized and publicized, and you know, when they're launching and so on. Uh, the the deep sea feels like, and, and even as your book describes it, feels like a much more sort of motley crew of, of people out there.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's true. So people who are in ocean mapping, um, one of the hardest things to write about this book was that ocean mappers and people who are in ocean mapping are sort of all over the world and you know they're like there's ship captains out there there's people who are involved with the military there's people who are involved on with science and so it's it's really hard to get everybody into one space and just make this map and they all have different priorities and space on the other hand is often thought of you know it kind of transcends all the politics of earth and it's sort of, you know, it's out there, it's far away. We can all come together for this humanitarian kind of goal. And the ocean just doesn't inspire that sort of fellow feeling with each other. We're all sort of out to kind of map our our own little plot of the world.
0: Laura Trithui is with us. Uh, she's an author. Her first book was called The Imperiled Ocean. Her latest is due out on July 11th. It's called The Deepest Map, The High Stakes Race to Chart the World's Oceans. That's what we're talking about. Uh, this half hour. Laura, when one thinks of of knowledge, you know, it could be used for good and evil. I know that's very simplistic, very Marvel comic sounding. Uh, but when it comes to to charting the world's oceans, uh, what are some of the clearly there are some real altruistic reasons to do it. And I'm sure there are some fears about it, too, because, you know, it is unexplored to some extent. And there's a lot of potentially a lot of money to be made down there.
2: Yeah, you're 100 percent right. I mean, In general, most people have kind of thought of ocean mapping as being useful for safe navigation, you know, moving a ship from Port A to Port B. Um, But what I discovered while I was writing this book is that um, ocean mapping is just so much bigger than that. There's uh, a lot of human history still down there, sunken on the continental shelves. There's a lot of um, fascinating mysteries still to solve. Um, Perhaps the greatest mystery of all time is still down there on the seafloor, which is, you know, where did life begin? We know it started somewhere on the seafloor at a hydrothermal vent, but we've got some we've got some good candidates like there's the lost city in the Atlantic, um, which is sort of this place of kind of spiraling hydrothermal vents that are going up meters from the seafloor. But recently, the lost city in the Atlantic was actually slated as a prospective mining site. So um, we may end up destroying this critical part of understanding humanity's origin story if we don't sort of map and protect and understand this part of the planet better.
0: Yeah, I was thinking Amelia Earhart and MH370, <laughs> Malaysian Airlines 370. I guess there are much bigger and more profound mysteries out there in the sea as well. The mining one is interesting because you've written about that separately as well in an op-ed for the Globe and Mail. That's, that's an interesting one because clearly there is a push to try to do it, not a huge one. And a lot of countries have said no. Uh, but where are we at with it? and 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 what does the future look like, the immediate future look like for deep sea mining?
2: Right. So this is a really critical issue that's going to come up in the next you know, month or so. There's a rule that's about to expire that would per, sort of open the international seafloor to deep sea mining. And there's a, a Canadian company at the forefront of that that's sort of been pushing for deep sea mining for quite some time. And so. So, yeah, so there's a, going to be a lot of government delegates, a lot of nonprofit groups who are going to be gathering in Jamaica very soon at the International Seabed Authority, which is the regulator of Deep Sea Mining, and they're going to be discussing whether the regulations are enough for the industry to go ahead or not. And yeah, as I mentioned, there's this Canadian company, the metals company, that is really at the forefront. They're out of Vancouver. And, you know, they very much need Deep Sea Mining to go ahead because they've had a couple of um, serious setbacks recently recently. As you mentioned, there's a bunch of countries that have come out against deep-sea mining. So we've had France and Germany who have um, want to put a pause on developing deep-sea mining. There's also a lot of corporations like Google and Samsung and Volkswagen and BMW who say they're not going to use these minerals. So where is the market for this? Canada so far has been kind of strangely silent on this. They have said that they'll ban domestic mining in, in in their domestic waters. But they haven't said anything yet about international waters, which is really where a lot of the pressure is building right now. I think it would be amazing if Canada sort of aligned itself with these other corporations and government and, and came out clearly and said, you know, we need to study this area a little bit more. We need to find out more about the deep sea environment and figure out, you know, whether mining it is worth it or not.
0: As we talk about mining in space and one thinks, well... You know, it must be equally attractive to try to mine and challenging, but equally attractive to try to figure out what lies in the deep sea as well. And and with that, I'm sure comes those who say there are reasons to do it and many who say there are reasons why we absolutely should.
2: Yes, absolutely. So the deep sea miners, their points tend to be that we need to have these metals primarily for electric vehicle batteries, but also for other things like sustainable tech. So things like wood turbines or electronics. They also tend to point out that uh, deep sea mining, a new source of metals, would help end destructive mining practices on land. Mm -hmm. So nickel mines are really polluting in equatorial countries like Indonesia. Um, Cobalt mining is, uh, you know, human rights atrocity in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where they have child laborers working in mines. But we're not exactly clear how critical these metals are going to be. And, you know, the metals market is evolving very rapidly. Cobalt and nickel, which is what they're trying to get out of the deep sea, might not be as relevant as we think. Batteries are moving more towards other alternatives. And then at the same time, there's no guarantee that deep sea mining would shut down terrestrial mining. So there's a risk that we would have um, mines on land and mines under the water and we would be, um, you know, polluting both.
0: Laura, that's one of the chapters in your book. What did you walk away with from this adventure of yours that started off with, we know, why do we know so little about this? Uh, What did you emerge? You 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 spent some time on a research uh, vessel and so forth. What did you walk away with?
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, thanks so much for saying that, because, you know, deep sea mining is really just a small pocket of what is a really fascinating world down there. I mean, the thing that I really walked away from is that the seafloor is sort of bigger and bolder and more extreme than anything that we find on land. You know, the deepest trenches are down there. You know, they're deeper than Mount Everest is high. There's volcanic eruptions. You know, the biggest uh, waterfall is underwater. It's not in Venezuela. You know, these are just incredible features that are down there on the seafloor. And I really came away from this kind of thinking that, The quest to map the seafloor, there's so many mysteries down there that we still have to solve that, you know, figuring out what's down there and mapping it is really not just a quest to map the seafloor. It's also just a quest to understand ourselves and our home.
0: Well, Laura, congratulations on the book. It's called called, uh, The Deepest Map, The High Stakes Race to Chart the World's Oceans. It's out on July the 11th. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you.